that was just Hal. He always was looking forward to things, and he was always looking at what he could do. That was Fran Finney, the widow of the great Hal Finney. Hal was a cypherpunk, a prolific coder, and an integral part of the history of Bitcoin, as well as a great advocate of internet privacy. Hal was the first person to contact Satoshi when he released the white paper. He was the first person to mine Bitcoin besides Satoshi. He was the recipient of the first Bitcoin transaction and made his famous first tweet about Bitcoin on Twitter on the 10th of January 2009 with the two simple words running Bitcoin. This is the very first interview that Fran has done since Hal and Fran were featured in a 2014 Wired article. What happened to Hal, Fran, and their family after this led them to leave the spotlight entirely, which Fran explains near the end of this interview. I also want to ask that people please don't try to contact them and respect the wishes of the family for privacy. They don't monitor social media or respond to messages. This was a absolutely wonderful interview and I was honored that Fran agreed to speak with me in the Bitcoin community. And we are doing this to help raise money for ALS research in Hal's memory, which you can find at digynocrypto.com slash Hal. That's H-A-L, digynocrypto.com slash Hal. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, so, actually, before we get into the actual, uh, you know, details in the in the in the stories about Hal, I wanted to thank you, you know, so much for sharing with me in the in the Bitcoin community your memories of Hal. You know, he's a, a man who's very much greatly admired, and he's loved and appreciated in the Bitcoin community. Thank you so much, Dustin. I'm really happy to share some of my memories of Hal. Hal was my life. Hal's a big chunk of my life. He'll always be. And uh, I'm so, I, I also feel really lucky to have been able to share that part of my life with him. And before, actually, one last thing, just I want to do this right at the top of the show, is I want to let people know that every year you do a, a charity ride in Hal's memory to raise money for the ALS, but specifically the Golden West chapter um, that took care of Hal. And this is every May. And I was wondering, or I was going to ask everybody who's listening, if you could go to digynocrypto.com slash Hal, that's H-A-L, or if you go on Twitter, um, the at Bitcoin for ALS, that's the number four. Or if you just Google Hal's Pals ALS, you'll find the, the links to the donation page. And we're working on right now, you can donate um, uh, with the debit or credit, uh, but we're working on getting the ability to donate uh, Bitcoin live as well. I'm really excited about that. I think uh, I work for the ALS Association, uh, Golden West Chapter, and this will be the first chapter in the ALS, as which is part of the ALS Association, uh, that will be able to accept Bitcoin. I think that's really uh Cool, <laughs> cool, shall I say, and, and and I'm so happy. Uh, 
this specific chapter, that's our local chapter, and the chapter did an awful lot to help when Hal was still alive, and, and I decided after he passed, they asked if I would be uh, interested in working with them and for them, and I, I'm really happy to do that. Why don't we start, you know, all the way at the beginning? Um, where did uh, where did you grow up? Where did Hal grow up? And how did you first meet? <laughs> okay, well, I although I I was I spent my youth back on the East Coast in uh, New Jersey and New York, and I don't know if I still have a, a little bit of an accent from that. But Hal was a California guy. He was born in California and spent most of his life in Southern California. We met at uh, Caltech, the California Institute of Technology, where we were both undergrads. I was actually a couple of years ahead of him. I had started. I was one of those people that was a little bit ahead. I'd skipped a year. So I'm only I'm only one year older than him, but I was a couple of years ahead of him. I met him as a junior. He was a freshman and I was immediately impressed by him. He was just a, a really uh, funny guy, an intelligent guy. And uh, so we became friends. Uh, didn't actually we didn't start seeing each other as uh, more than that until after I graduated. But we were close friends during the two years that we shared together at Caltech and then maintained that friendship, which turned into a lot more than friendship after that. And what were you uh, studying at the time? I was studying biology. I was hoping to go to medical school, so I was pre-med. And I switched my my um, focus, though. I went into grad school at, in neurobiology and then eventually physical therapy. So very medical. Hal was uh, Hal started in math and he switched because he 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 was great in math. He came in to Caltech already testing out of the first two years of math at Caltech, which is unusual. So he was going right into the upper upper uh, upper class courses. But he was fascinated by coding, and he switched to engineering. I don't think they had a computer science. Uh, major back then, so I think his his major was probably in engineering, but he was actually studying computers and coding. Uh, he he just loved it. I, I'd heard stories uh, about you know how it was like to walk around campus with you know carry around like Atlas shrugged under his arm. I was just wondering, you know, was he uh, kind of a political person throughout his life? As far as for that being a very important part of his life. Or was that just kind of um, um, just something more that that because uh, some people make that a very big part of their of their outlook? Or was this just something more that kind of informed the direction of, of where he thought? I think that anecdote of him walking around with Atlas Shrugged, that's a bit of an exaggeration. He he did. Uh, he was very much. Uh, he he believed in freedom of choice for everyone and uh politically he wasn't an activist at all but he was very happy to get involved in long discussions about that uh never a political activist but had some strong beliefs yeah, I mean, most of the actions, it's kind of a more of a mixed bag, but definitely a lot of the, the early people and Bitcoining and really the cypherpunks yeah. in, in general were very much um, 
kind of a libertarianish leaning, um, which was always very interesting to me because they were also uh, a lot of them were California people, which is not necessarily the, the biggest hub of of libertarianism in in the in the country but it was it was always very uh kind of just interesting that there was this whole group of people that were that were kind of brought together under this uh, belief in the idea of of a right to privacy of a right to the ability to kind of uh choose your own path in life and and uh and to kind of create a, a more open and, and free society yeah, Tal was definitely that way. He identified as a libertarian, and he did many times register himself as a libertarian, although because of the way that the laws work in California, if you want to vote in a primary election, you have to be registered as a member of that party. So if you look through the history of Hal and elections, he would go back and forth from one party to the other, depending on who was running and what he felt he could have the most impact with, not even necessarily because he believed in in or wanted or preferred the person running, but he felt in that particular election, it would be more meaningful if he registered as a Republican or as a Democrat rather than a Libertarian. Uh, but, but yes, he identified very much with the libertarian cause, not a perfect libertarian. He had some distinct uh, issues that he he might have uh, taken, uh, might have disagreed with. But well, none of us are. There's there's the yeah. uh, there's the trope in libertarianism is that uh, there's uh, you know we always like to accuse other people of, well, you're not a libertarian because you hold this one position that I disagree with. And there's the only, there's only one real libertarian and that's always you. Um, <laughs> is usually how that, right. that works. Sure. Um, but uh, it, it, so growing up in, in Southern California, did he do a lot of traveling um, throughout his life or, or did he, did he stick around kind of Southern California for, for most of his career and, and uh, personal life? I would say he wanted to do a lot of traveling, but things always came up. We didn't have a lot of money, so we did go travel a bit, uh, but every time we traveled, it would use up a lot of our savings and Hal wanted to, Hal really wanted to be able to pay for his children's college and not have to put them into debt. So we were always, uh, very aware of the fact that we needed to maintain some savings so that we could do that for them. And uh, so, yeah, we did some, some traveling, but not much. What was his favorite pastime? I mean, uh, you know, everybody's got their, you know, I know that he was, he was very much dedicated to, to his work and was passionate about, uh, you know, coding and, and his family, but you know, outside of that, did he have any specific hobbies uh, that he liked to kind of in engage in to kind of either take your mind off things or, or um, you know, had a similar passion for? <laughs> he his his uh, hobbies were sort of eclectic. He had a lot of different things he liked to do. He liked to be outside. He liked to do things with the children outside, like hiking or. Uh, 
going to fairs or and when he went to fairs he liked to indulge and eat in all of the crazy food that they serve at fairs uh he liked to go to parades with the kids uh he so so family things big uh he liked to go out and run he liked to go out even when he wasn't into his fitness thing he was going out and running he liked to run with the dogs he liked our dogs he liked animals uh he liked to read. He read all kinds of things, sci-fi big time. Uh, he liked to read technical books. He liked to do codes and puzzles. From the time he was a child, he was into secret codes. I have some of the things that his, his uh, parents gave me of some secret codes that he was working on as a child, all written in little notebooks. Uh, boy, I mean, you could, he, he, tried to teach himself how to draw because he wanted to be a better artist. He, he uh, learned about cooking and tried cooking some gourmet foods. Uh, you name it, to, to pick an area, and Hal probably dabbled in it a bit. He just, he just liked to do a lot of different things. I couldn't keep up with him. There's always one thing or another. <laughs> Three things very at much once. a renaissance man then. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned the the running, and that was one of the things I was I was interested in because, um, uh, you know, you you said that he always liked to run, but you know, l- later in his life, he kind of really focused in and decided to to pick up basically training for for marathons, and you don't often see people just kind of decide to do that um, later in life. Usually, it's something that people do in their twenties and 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 kind of that that's their thing but to decide at that point in his life like i'm going to do a marathon is is kind of unique i was just wondering what it was that that drove him to decide just to pick that up or was this just another one of those like okay i think i want to do that so i'm just going to do that yeah <laughs> that's a good question uh i actually do have an answer to that i at some point in midlife, I'm, I don't remember exactly what year, might have been uh, late 40s, he went for his annual checkup and his doctor told him that he was obese and needed to lose weight. Hal had been, he was one of those guys that enjoyed life, always semi-active, but his weight had been gradually keep creeping up through the years. I think he had probably weighed about 170 when I married him and it had gotten all the way up to maybe 240 250 so it was gradually creeping up but this was a shocker to him so he tried dieting and he did not like dieting and then he was reading up on how to lose weight and he uh realized that he if he upped his exercise that might mean that he wouldn't have to diet as much so he started running a lot more regularly and uh a lot more increasing his mileage and he noticed that that was really effective and he was just dropping weight so then he got he started becoming fascinated and challenging himself to run more and i think that's what happened it just gradually turned from running to lose weight into gee i wonder what it would what would happen if i ran a half marathon, and then he ran a few half marathons, did well, and he thought, well, gee, I think I'd like to run Boston. And he had all these charts, mostly on his computer, but also written down. He, I have about 
12 books all on running that he bought because when he gets when he would get into something <laughs> you know i'm talking in the present because i still think of him so much and i dream about him so i started hearing myself say when he gets into something but anyway when he would get into something he would always go for it in a big way so i still have all of those running books how to increase your running, how to run a marathon, how to win a marathon, how to do this, how to do that. And one of his bucket list uh, ideas was that he wanted to compete in the Boston Marathon. But that all happened because of this shocker from the doctor that he was uh, obese. His weight, though, for the last few years was down around 160. So, uh, he was actually leaner than he had been when when I married him. It it sounds like uh like he was a person that would find something interesting and then once once that kind of clicked for him, he just kind of became obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Once it clicked, he became obsessed. He admitted that. He he admitted that he would become obsessed with things sometimes to the point where he would realize, hey, I have to to pull back a little bit. This is I'm I'm just becoming too uh compulsive about this particular thing. Well, and as far as for like his his daily um cuz like with that kind of obsessive you know personality of of getting was that did that spill over as far as for like his his daily uh, um, routine because it sounded like he was a pretty i mean was he a pretty regimented person in terms of like planning his day like like he would have you know as for example with the running did he just um decide to run whenever he got up or was it like okay at 5 30 i'm getting up i'm gonna start running for an you know i'm gonna run for an hour and 15 minutes and i get back i do my breakfast then, you know, that sort of thing? Or was it um, kind of more of a, an open schedule um, and things get kind of get fit in as, as they become available? I think it was more of the second, actually, Dustin. He did have schedules that he, that he used sort of more as a, as a goal, but Hal was very flexible. That was one of the, one of his, uh, I would say a big strength. He was a, a, amazingly flexible. He, although he had goals that he wanted to pursue, he also was really fine with switching things around and pushing things over and rescheduling in order to still sort of meet those goals. And he was very successful with that. He maybe, uh, maybe at least outwardly i don't know inwardly if it was something that ever bothered him but he didn't show it if something came up with the family he was very quick to move things around uh <clears throat> he the some of i i would say he managed to fit more into a day than than i could fit into to multiple days he just did things he was always doing something I rarely saw Hal not doing something. Wake up and the day is moving. Something comes up, he addresses it, and then he gets back to what he was doing before uh, or what he needed to do. But uh, he was always asking, he was always telling me I needed to be more flexible, but in a nice way. He had a joke where he would say, Fran, 
put on your flexible cap when he needed to make a change because even though my days were much simpler and less demanding and had less in them, when, when there was a change in my plan, it was difficult for me. And Hal never gave me a hard time about it, but he would tease me about it. So we had, he did have that little saying, Fran, when he needed to ask me to make a change in my plans, Fran, put on your flexible cap. But I would say Hal lived with his flexible cap on. Would, because uh, I, I, have, I have this issue of uh, my wife always says that I can't relax. Um, that Somewhat similar, uh, although I'm not as prolific as, as Hal was, where I just, I, I have a hard time having downtime uh i, I don't like to you know. <laughs> that's like how yep he had a hard time with downtime where it was yeah it's it's you can't just sit in like you know it has to be something that's planned where we go and watch a movie or whatever i don't and i, I was just wondering is that something like if if there was you know at the end of the day the kids are in bed um it, it was i i imagine that he was uh, from what you're describing is the type of person that wouldn't go, I'm just going to go watch TV for an hour and go to bed. It was more of a, well, I can be reading this or I can be working on that or planning, you know, uh, uh, th this uh, running schedule. Absolutely. No, the second. Uh, in fact, I, I always went to bed before he did because I just couldn't stay up. Sometimes I used to, well, <laughs> if we were in the early days, he would be at work because back then you couldn't, do your work from home. There were no home computers to do the coding that you wanted to. So he would want to be at work because he was working on something interesting. And I would be at work with him. This is APH, some of his early jobs. Uh, and so I would just bring a blanket and I would lie down on and near him and nap while he was at work this was pre-kids too but i wanted to i was with him spending the time with him he wanted to do some more work so i would be there at home once we had he had the ability to work from home that wasn't an issue and it was great that he could do that and he could seem to survive on less sleep than i needed uh i do have a little quirky background Thing about him that might explain part of, of this, but I, it was something, again, that I admired. His family um, had a tendency towards drinking a lot, and Hal, when he was in college, he, he, uh, he never drank in high school, but when he, he went to college, college life involves drinking, and he realized that uh, drinking was a great way to relax, so he started drinking. Well, uh, early on, he had some, and I don't know if this was a pre, a warning for the ALS or whatever, but uh, he, he started having seizures. And we took him to the hospital trying to figure out, was it epilepsy? What was going on? They did some testing. And basically, they told him he better not drink. So he stopped drinking. So for the rest of his life, and this was from, I guess, about a year into my marriage with him, he didn't drink. But he didn't have that way to relax. A lot of people will say, oh, I'll have a glass of wine at night and that'll help me wind down. And that wasn't an option for him. He, he took it very seriously. He didn't want to 
deal with that. I don't know if you could call him an alcoholic because it was sort of a pre-alcoholic thing, but he took it as I better not drink. So he didn't. So that, that outlet for him was gone. Well, yeah, I think that that's very common for, you know, people like Hal that are very, very driven is that, you know, things like alcohol is, is something that can help basically turn the mind off, um, where that's without, without, uh, um, you know, sometimes they just want to basically shut all that off so they can relax where without it, you kind of, your mind's racing in a thousand different directions. And, um, but you know, it seems like, well, I mean, he, he took that very seriously and then it, it just kind of, um, turned that, turned that, that drive into, into work and family, which is, you know, a very, very healthy outlet. I was just looking at his, um, cause I have a copy of, uh, two of the games that he worked on adventures of Tron and, and armor battle that he did in 82 and 83. And which company was that? Because he he programmed, I think it was five games, and then he Tron he did completely by himself, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But was that was APH that company, yes. or was that a different? Yes, one? that was okay. APH. Uh, which is I I'm not even sure <laughs> what APH stood for. At Caltech, APH was Applied Physics. And Glenn Hightower, who started the company, uh, that was his major. But I don't even know if APH stood for that or, or if it was just num uh, letters. I think it was just letters. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's, uh, it, it's, you can actually, there's a, a Easter egg um, that you can find in Adventures of Tron. Um, I was looking up on, on uh, I just happened to be going through it. It was a video game Easter egg thing um, where you can find like these little hidden things that programmers put in the games. And it was very much earlier on. Now it's more about like they put these little, you know, cheats in there so that you can do something in a game that you normally can't. But earlier on, it was like little messages and stuff. And uh, there's a little Easter egg in adventures of Tron where you can uh, Hal's name shows up um, in the, in the game um, as uh, one of the Easter eggs that that's uh that's in there so that's it was kind of um interesting what was i mean i know that you said that you don't you know or that we talked about uh before we started recording that you don't have a lot of knowledge of the technical stuff but what was um wh what would you say that is is like a favorite place that he that he worked at um and just as far as for you know the coding and and all that i didn't know if it was doing the video games or working with phil or um, where was this basically where he was really, really, uh, uh, happy with, with what he was doing? I think how a couple of places, but he was definitely very happy working on PGP, both prior to, uh, being actually paid and reimbursed when he was doing it, uh, just out of interest with Phil. And then later on when he was working for PGP Corporation or Symantec, I think he liked that because it was something that he felt was important to work on. He enjoyed working for, uh, with, uh, with Glenn at APH. That was, but he felt like that was not challenging enough. And so and, and I think a lot of his other jobs, he, he worked because, and he enjoyed them, but they weren't challenging him enough. He worked uh, at Amatech after APH and because he felt he wanted to do some more real work. So he was working with parallel processors then. 
but he again didn't feel like that was broadening his 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 knowledge enough so then he went to work on compilers at green hills and i he he liked that because he was learning new things but he didn't feel challenged he wasn't fascinated by it after a while and that's when he started doing outside of work uh work with phil uh working on cryptography uh so that was back in uh, the 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 middle 90s i think when he started that uh so i would say yeah aph uh was uh was fun everything else he liked cuz he liked the learning and then pgp absolutely because it was something he he felt uh was important he started dabbling in um crypto cash with his uh I don't even remember RPAO. Uh, I, I don't know what any of that means. But anyway, started dabbling in that because when it, how it would always get, always wanted to challenge himself. So yes, he was working on PGP. And then once that was his job, he started looking for something else that would be fascinating that he could challenge himself with. Always looking for more things. Well, and, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned... Um offline as well that when i interviewed phil um a good you know chunk of of the interview was actually we, we just kind of talked about hal and, and his relationship with him and I, I always thought that was really a really good example of his of his character and that he was you know helping phil with pgp and phil kind of had he said that he kept his name out of it because they were still in, in, you know, uh, dealing with, with the, uh, government case at the time. And he was just worried. He didn't want, um, Hal to have, you know, any kind of repercussions from whatever fallout. I mean, everything turned out fine. Um, and rightfully so, but, uh, you know, I was just thinking that really spoke to his character and who he was, was that, you know, this was all, he was doing this because, or, you know, this is my assumption um, was that, you know, that he saw PGP as being something that was right to do and, and that people being able to protect their, their communications on the internet um, from being eavesdropped on was the right thing to do. And then he wasn't, he didn't do it for, you know, he wasn't paid and he wasn't doing it for fame or notoriety because no one really knew about it until many, many, many years later. And even then, it, it's still not that well known that he was working on PGP during those years. But I, I thought that that was, to me, very telling of of who he was, in that he just kind of saw the right thing to do and, and did it, and wasn't looking for for people uh, for adulation. Yeah, I think that that's a lot of it. That that's a lot of it. And then the other was just that Hal loved mental challenges he loved puzzles so it it was a combination of knowing and feeling very strongly that it was the right thing to do and at the same time being really intrigued by it and really enjoying it and wanting to solve this puzzle so about both things some altruistic and some just because he enjoyed it you know and everyone sees the world in a in a different way and they you know their personal life experiences and their personality and who they are kind of almost kind of paints the windows that they look at the world with and i was just kind of wondering what his 
outlook on life was, you know, how he experienced it and just, you know, cause from what I've heard or I should say what I've read. And then from talking with you, it seems like he was a, a person that was just had a very positive outlook. Um, wasn't someone that was, that would allow, um, uh, adversity to really kind of change their, their, his worldview per se on, on, to, to color it and change who he was. Whereas oh, man, you know, that's at... absolutely true. Absolutely true. He was so positive. Uh, this was why he dealt with the ALS the way he did. He was positive his whole life. I could not, I, I, I feel you know, <laughs> dwarfed by him. My, my family was not like it, but it was, Hal wasn't, his family wasn't like that. That was just how he always was looking forward to things and he was always looking at what he could do and what he had rather than what he didn't have or what he might have lost or looking back he he didn't have regrets he just always moved forward and and looked at what can i do now it, it was crazy actually <laughs> uh dustin because i i'm not that way but i learned so much from him uh, about being that way, about how to move on and, and look forward and, and see, look at what you have now and, and what can you do with it? And he, he was a very positive person. He wasn't just a glass half full. He was like a glass, mostly full, even if, if a lot of stuff was lost. And, you know, like you, you were talking about that, you know, early on, you, I get, I think that, you know, that, that probably was made for a very happy relationship and that you said you guys didn't have a lot of money and, you know, especially early on in a marriage, I think most, most marriages are like that where you, you know, live in a tiny, uh, tiny apartment or tiny house. And, and, um, and then you just, if you just keep on moving forward and then, I mean, I, I imagine uh, that the, the biggest struggle you probably ever had was that, that diagnosis. How did, how did that come to be that because I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with with ALS, but I don't you know, know exactly the the kind of genesis. How did that how did he come to, uh, you know, realize that he needed to to go and see somebody? And, and how did he you know, that diagnosis kind of affect how he was going to go forward with his life from that point on? Yeah, uh, you know, ALS is a is a big umbrella diagnosis. Right now, it's not very well understood, and we do know that there are a large number of diseases or syndromes that would be considered ALS now. In fact, the diagnosis of ALS is what we call a diagnosis of exclusion, where you test for everything that we know more about, and when all of those things are ruled out, including, oh, brain tumor, uh, MS, uh, a lot of uh, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, just uh, many, many different things, lead poisoning, Lyme disease, many things, uh, then you buy, and it fits certain patterns, which are very specific, and I won't go into those, but then it's given the diagnosis. It can present in many, many different ways. In Hal's case, Early in 2009, 
he he started noticing his running training that he wasn't improving so much that he was needing he was getting more tired his times he kept everything charted and he was just tiring out sooner and and he was it felt like he was cramping up or he couldn't push himself quite as much so he started looking into different ways to run like what, what uh, something called zen running then i noticed when we were we used to run together i noticed that when we would talk and run he wasn't able to talk and run at the same time i mentioned that to him and he actually got a little bit short with me and said well no one can talk and run at the same time which i thought was a crazy thing to say but i i think he was worried about it and so he said that to me and that was very uncharacteristic of him uh, and then he started noticing slurred speech very mild but the more he spoke, the more it happened. It almost sounded like he'd been drinking a little bit. So speech, talking when running, coordination. Um, and he started, this was still early in 2009. He started noticing a lot of different things that his right hand felt a little uncoordinated, uh, but he could still type with it. We went in to see his first thing we did was we went, it's a long, long progression just for the first few months, but we went through several doctors. He saw first a, um, I, I think, went to see a rheumatologist about, because we, I thought maybe it was a general rheumatological issue. Rheumatologist said, oh, you're just getting older. Uh, but then the speech issue became worse and he went to see his primary doctor who sent him referred him to a neurologist once we saw a neurologist neurologist detected red flags started testing him and a series of we didn't want to to stop the testing but I think his neurologist started suspecting that it might be ALS around May of 2009. And at that point referred him to a UCLA clinic that specialized in ALS. And uh, they did more tests and he got the diagnosis in August of 2009. So it was pretty quick onset for him from the initial things show, showing up maybe in February of 2009. Yeah, and, and your background um, in, in, in pre-med, I, I imagine that that was, um, you know, compared to someone that had uh, no background in, in this sort of uh, the field, that it was probably, I mean, helpful, but also um, somewhat of a burden um, having that, that knowledge of, of uh of medicine and uh, compared to just trusting the doctors um you know the, especially that first one it was just like oh it's probably just you getting older um but uh you know how did that kind of influence and also help um through the through this this time period of your, of your life yeah i knew something was wrong how being the kind of person that moves on and moves forward initially preferred to ignore all of these things that 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 um response to me about his being able to run and talk at the same time for example i 
that was wrong. I knew that was wrong. But but he just uh, assumed that he had never noticed it before. Uh, he he didn't want to focus on that. He wanted when he when he was not able to run as well, he instead of looking at what's why can't I run as well, he started looking into alternative ways to run so he could continue to run. Uh, so I would say, yeah, at that point, it was a burden because I kept feeling feeling like I was the monger of bad news. I was the person who kept saying how you need to get tested, how you need to go to the doctor. I didn't want to be right about something being wrong and Hal wanted to just keep moving forward and figuring out ways to deal with each new problem as it cropped up. But he was willing to listen to me and then it turned out it was something very terrible that couldn't be treated anyway. So that was frustrating. I mean, I was hoping by pushing him, saying, you need to go to the doctor, you need to do this, you need to do that, that we would figure out what was wrong and we would fix it. But unfortunately, it wasn't fixable. So yeah, that part was a burden. Uh, Later on, it was a great asset to have this background so I could keep him comfortable. I could see red flags about things that needed to be dealt with. Uh, so that he wouldn't get sick or get infections or get bed sores or whatever. There were just uh, infinite numbers of things that you have to deal with as someone becomes paralyzed and and, and are choosing to live at home. So I, I knew enough that that was helpful. Uh, so I would say that was only good. It was only good. It, it, it allowed me to keep him comfortable and alive and actually effective longer because at some point he was no longer disabled he was medically uh <laughs> he was a medical person instead of a disabled person uh and and at that point he was relying on other people to do everything for him so then it was helpful Prior to that, Hal wanted to figure out how to do things for himself, and he kept doing that for as long as he could. Well, I imagine being the type of person that he is, and especially uh, being a programmer, and you know, w- within that that mindset of, and and just who he was as a person was that you you, know, you there's if you find a bug in 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 your code, you you know you search for it, you find it you fix it and then you keep on moving forward and having that diagnosis versus something else where there was a a specific treatment or a diet regimen that would, you know, have, have a, have an outlook of, of fixing, it would be quite um, difficult to, to deal with. Um, I've uh, a relative, it's not ALS, but she's had uh, muscular dystrophy, for quite a, a long time that slowly progressed over time as far as for her ability to uh, walk and, and function in a lot of ways. And I know that that's a, a very difficult thing um, to do or, or to, to be able to wrap your head around. But I, I imagine that would be a l- little bit more with that mentality, like you said, of let's just move forward where you're saying, let's hold up and, and figure this out. Brush aside the fact that he was losing the ability to do things the way he had done them before and instead was looking 
into, well, how can I deal with the current situation? This is where I am now. So what do I do with it? And he was so proud of all of his little accomplishments. One of the frustrating things about a disease like ALS, though, a progressive disease, <laughs> is that you figure out a fix and then a week later that fix doesn't work anymore. For some people, the progression is slower, but for Hal, it was an ongoing thing. Okay, now I can do, now I can get out of the chair if I have a lift chair and I have a pole over here. Okay, now I can't do that anymore, but maybe if I have a lift chair and a pole and I figure out another way to put something else so I can grab with my other arm. Okay, well now that doesn't work anymore. So maybe now if I have a lift chair and something that swivels, I mean, always figuring out what can I do? What can I do? Okay, now my hands don't work anymore. So how can I do it now? Uh, eventually, as I said, he needed to rely on people completely, but he was always looking with the coding. At first, he noticed his right hand wasn't working, so he taught himself to touch type with his left hand. And he was doing single hand, left-handed fast. He, he had been an, an amazingly fast uh, coder. He, his typing speed was, I don't know, 120 words per minute uh, when he was by when he was using both hands. Well, he taught himself to type very quickly using just his left hand. Then he couldn't type with his left hand anymore. So then we, he figured out how to put a little splint on some of his fingers so they would hold, stay stiff enough so he could still type with two fingers with his left hand. Then he figured out how to type with one finger with his left hand. Then he couldn't do it anymore, so he figured out how to, then, so, so then he got into eye gaze. Well, how can I do it with my eyes? He got a program called Dasher, which was an amazing way to go really fast with his eyes, but it required fine eye control. So he did that for a long time, probably was still doing that when he posted Bitcoin and me. But towards the end, he, lost, he started losing his ability to control his eyes. <clears throat> we saw several doctors about that because Hal knew he was losing the ability to control his eyes. But the doctors, it's so rare in ALS, they kept saying, oh, no, no, you just need new glasses. Oh, no, you just need to stop doing this. Oh, no, maybe it's your medication. Let's pull you off these uh, medications. And we tried all of those things, and he continued to lose his ability to move his eyes. So we moved into communicating with one with with screens that had just maybe four letters at a time on the screen that he had to scroll through very slow instead of his fast way. And that worked for a while. And then he lost that too. But until until that happened, I, I would say Hal's focus was always, let's see, what can I do with what I have now? How can I work with this? As you said, coder mentality. <laughs> Let's see what, how can I fix this bug? But instead of a bug, it's more like, this is what I got to work with now. He also came from an early time where he learned, he learned binary coding. He learned early, very, very um, primitive computer languages that didn't have much 
to work with, memory was minimal. His games that he did back for PGP were, I, I don't know the, the, uh, the correct numbers or anything, but, you know, minimal uh, to work, RAM to work with. And uh, if that's right, I mean, the, uh, <laughs> I, I, I better stay out of using any, any technical terms because I'll misuse them. But anyway, he didn't have much to work with. It was very primitive. And, uh, and he was, and he knew how to do that. So he kind of had to go back to doing that with communications for himself. Well, I'd, I'd read um, an article or or actually, no, I think it was in Bitcoin and me. Yeah, I believe, no, that, that was the, the post where he was talking about how he'd uh, created an interface using an Arduino system so that he could adjust his wheelchair, its position, um, using that, that um, uh, the eye movement tracker. And it was just, it was very- Oh yeah, that was very, so crazy. Yeah. It was amazing. Totally. Uh, he was just he continuing to create things uh, to-, to uh, better you know just better his situation looking for anything that he could fix and he had such an upbeat attitude about it dustin i remember he was gleeful he was gleeful about doing this he was so happy to be able to do this it was a serious issue he'd been in his in his wheelchair he was having a hard time adjust with getting people to adjust it enough and he was developing pressure sores to the point where it was causing him a lot of pain and, and uh, he had, he was stuck sitting and he couldn't move and to have people constantly adjusting him, it just wasn't working. So he did this and he was, and it worked and he was like, that was so happy that brought him supreme happiness <laughs> and it was truly amazing. It was amazing that he was able to do this. It worked. But gleeful every time Hal Hal achieved something that he was excited about, he was so happy. And, and you know, uh, you 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 talked about with his his you know hobbies. He liked to go hiking and and running up in 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 the woods and up in the hills. Um, and I've I've always enjoyed that. I grew up um, in a very mountainous area, so I, I always really in, I I always personally found. Um, that kind of going up there, getting out of the the, the town, um, even though it's a very very tiny town, but getting out of there, and you could kind of get up and you get over like a hill or two, and it's almost like there's there's nothing else in the world that that's around you, and it's very um, you know kind of like the Zen running uh, in a way where it's it focuses your mind. Um, I was wondering if if that was something that that how found were just kind of getting getting away out into the to nature was kind of a very regenerative thing for him. Yes, yes. He, he I exactly. He did enjoy getting out to nature. He he enjoyed running, he enjoyed hiking when we went on road trips with with the kids or without the kids. He, we always wanted to go to natural places, do see a lot of uh, Bryce uh Grand Canyon, things like places like that, where where he could just enjoy seeing natural sites, hiking. And as far as uh, this kind of a, a side question, but I was just wondering what kind of uh, a music actually that he in, enjoyed uh, listening to, um, whether it was 
I mean, people's musical tastes will change throughout their life, but yeah. there's usually a, a very set things that you really uh, like. Usually, kind of gets cemented in your in your in your youth. But uh, you know, what kind of what kind of music did he enjoy going to? Did he like going to concerts, or was he kind of a uh, more of a homebody in that sense, where he he just rather listened to it uh, at home? He did like concerts. We used to go to concerts together. Uh, we we went to college in the 70s, but I'd say that Hal was really big on the 80s, New Age, more so than the music from the 70s. He was never into the uh, psychedelic rock type stuff, but he really liked pre-New Age and New Age music into the 80s. Uh, moving into the 90s, he continued to always be listening to new music. Uh, he got he was in he enjoyed the killers for example things that were upbeat uh i'm trying to we we did go to a, a lot of concerts but more of the 80s type of stuff duran duran uh in excess uh things like that not so much the heavy rock uh 70s uh, and certainly not the disco 70s, even though, again, we were in college in the 70s, uh, and he listened to things like that. I think some of the 70s brought back uh, memories of drinking in college, so he wasn't really wanting that because he didn't want to, like Doors, music like that was bringing back that. Uh, towards the end of his life, he started listening to uh country and i think that was more he was becoming more nostalgic and i'm i'm talking when he had als now so all of a sudden he got into country and that was new it wasn't that hal disliked any music i couldn't really say there was anything that he he would say oh i can't stand this but he was never a rap um person and he was never really a, an opera person he did listen to classical a lot of different things. We didn't go to classical concerts, though. We went to concerts where we could move, uh, where we could get up and, and dance a little bit in the aisles. It was fun. The, the last one we went to was a Killers concert that was playing locally in Santa Barbara. Hal had ALS at that point, but it was really early. And I, I remember as we walked through the the stadium he was he was kind of checking out the handicapped areas and saying well that's where i'm going to have to go oh that's where i'm going to have to be and he was very upbeat about it like well yeah we're going to have to figure out how we can keep going to concerts so i can do this uh <laughs> but we didn't end up really doing too much of that once he was in a wheelchair you know something that i struggle with as many people uh, do especially well i think probably this is very historical but uh now it's it's something we can actually work on um and and figure out but that's you know work-life balance um and I, I was just wondering you kind of had, had talked about that where hal shifted things but what was you know his his work life uh, balance as far as for um being able to um you know, make sure that everything got done to provide for the family, but also uh, to uh, be able to give, you know, you and, and the kids um, the time that they needed as well. Yeah, I think 
Hal always did everything that he wanted to do, maybe to the detriment of his own health. But I think the the time when it when it was most obvious to me was when he was working full time, probably Green Hills, and also working with Phil, because at that point he would be working full days at the office at Green Hills, come home, want to do things like maybe go out for a quick run or something like that. And then Phil would call maybe during dinner time and Hal would get on the phone and then he would go over to the computer and then he would be working and that could go into the night. And I wasn't even aware of how much time he was putting into those things, but it seemed like he did everything, but he didn't really maybe take care of himself. Maybe the things that got lost during those years were the running and the exercise. And I think those were the years where he put on the weight uh, because he was just so busy doing things that took up so much time and he needed to squeeze a little sleep in there too. He was much happier working for PGP where he didn't have to double work. (laughs) <laughs> where he didn't have to do double duty. Oh, okay. So it's, it it seems like it was it was more of um, that you know it was family first, and then but then work took precedence over over his own self care yes. more than anything. Yes. And I think I think that's very very common, especially the the some of the programmers that I that I know. That's that's very much because imagine. Later on with PGP, uh, that was more of a time when you could do that from home. So you kind of free up your schedule uh, more versus having to go uh, technically into an office to do a lot of your work where you could do that from home. So that was something that, well, I can do that from, you know, eight o'clock to two or three in the morning. And and uh, then I'll just, you know, sleep until, you know, the, the kids get up or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and the, the second to last question, I wanted to, to end, um, uh, talking about your work with the ALS, but the, the last question I wanted to ask was if there was a, a specific memory that you can think of and feel like sharing, um, that would best convey to the people who are listening, um, who, how was as a person and, and what he meant to you. <sighs> You know, that's a that's a, a, a tough one. Hal I feel like Hal and I Hal Hal always assured me that we had a partnership, that we were a partnership. I always felt like I learned so much from him. I came into our marriage a child and he taught me so much about the big picture and and being and looking for good. He always was, would assure me that he learned a lot from me or as much or more from me. I, I, I'm not sure how. Uh, Dustin, would you like me to share a little bit about the end of, of Hal's life, just so people can understand why I am, I am, I've become so hesitant to, to be, uh, yes, of course. Okay. Cause this isn't my memory of Hal, but this is more why now I 
sadly am not as publicly involved in things as I would truly wish to be. Uh, but towards the end of, of Hal's life, we, uh, after Bitcoin became very uh, successful and there were articles trying to figure out who the inventor of Bitcoin was and whether Hal was Satoshi, we started receiving threats and uh, extortion demands and things like that. Uh, and there was a very traumatic incident in May, June of uh, the year that he, he died, 2014. At that point, Hal was really completely paralyzed and on life support, and he couldn't communicate with his eyes anymore except to say yes, no, and that was even difficult. So he, he was pretty, pretty uh, weak at that point. Uh, but we received a, a, um, a threat that if we didn't uh, send this person who called himself Bitcoin troll some uh, Bitcoin that uh, he would, we would be sorry, basically. <laughs> and uh, the, the, we, this ended up with some some SWAT attacks and and Hal was really badly hurt during during one of them where he he was uh, we I was out he I was forced to take him outside uh, in the middle of a shower in the middle of of uh, him being off life support we put him back on life support but it was physically really hard on him uh, and there, I, I have all kinds of details about that, but but it, it ended up shortening his life. I know that. So it, it was uh, a bad time. And since then, I still occasionally receive threats. Unfortunately for us or whatever or whatever, I, I couldn't I can't really respond to extortion threats with Bitcoin because we needed to use we need to convert our Bitcoin in order to keep how comfortable ALS is a very expensive, expensive disease. And if you have someone living at home on life support, uh, there are just are so many costs that are not covered by insurance. So I was very fortunate and grateful to have those um, Bitcoin to fall back on. I will always be grateful for that. I had support from uh, people but not enough, not, not financial support, just more. Uh... <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I, I don't want to keep going on with this, but it hasn't stopped. And so I prefer not to be too public because I, I don't want, I don't want to respond to, I don't want more of these attacks. It, we, it, they've continued and, and, uh, I found that I've had to minimize my contacts with people. I love the Bitcoin community. I'm so grateful to for for and it makes me so happy to see people recognizing how, but I don't respond because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the few bad apples out there that that are still out there to to uh, try to hurt us. And that's that's completely understandable, and 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 uh, you know it's it's very heartbreaking to hear um, that 
people are continuing to, um, and during that time where we're just causing more, more strife, where, where it already um, was, was a, a very uh, trying time for you guys. Uh, but you know, since, since then, though, you've done um, a lot of work with the ALS Association and the Golden West chapter um, uh, locally. And uh, if you if you don't mind, maybe sharing about uh, what what you do there, what um, the ALS Association and, the, and, and Golden West does um, specifically and and how people uh, can can help. Uh, sure, one sure. Of... I would love to do that. So I'm going to I'm going to back off a little bit and end with that. So I'm going to back off to why I do this. How, so, uh, yes, Hal had ALS and Hal chose to be uh, cryonically preserved at Alcor. And the reason why he did that was because he he loved life and he, he didn't want to give up on living. And he, he did admit that he didn't, he, he's not a, a believer per se in anything. So it's not that in being frozen, he believes someday he will come back to life, but he does believe, he did believe that this, there was a chance. And my, I'm committed to helping him in any way achieve that if there is a chance. When Hal died, he had some pretty severe issues with his, uh, the ALS had progressed to a crazy amount. It affected his, his eyes, his brain, all kinds of things. So, and I don't want this to happen to anyone else. And I, I would love to be able to someday have Hal alive again and healthy. In order for Hal to be alive again and healthy, it's a pipe dream, I know, but we need a cure for ALS. I, I, I see people every day in my work being diagnosed with ALS, and we still don't have a cure for it. We still don't have even a way to stop its progression. The the research is happening and it, and things are happening, but we're not there. We're not even close to there. I, um, I'm, my work with the ALS, I'm what's called a care management consultant. I meet with people who have been diagnosed with ALS in the Santa Barbara community. And, and what I, what our association does is, uh, we can offer them all kinds of loaner equipment, like power chairs, uh, eye gaze they, uh, equipment, so that they can have have access to that equipment quickly. Because going through insurance can take a long time, and for someone with fast progression, going through insurance, which is what Hal and I often did. Uh, it can take multiple months and by the time you get the okay through your insurance you're no longer you would no longer benefit from that particular piece of equipment because you've progressed beyond that it's just slow in addition a lot of things aren't covered so we we do uh, get equipment for people i give people all kinds of help and advice on how to access benefits that they might not know they have. I run a support group where people can meet together and 
share face-to-face -face issues they're dealing with and same for the caregivers. Our association also works a lot on research and that's, that's we, we, we uh, funds go towards all kinds of research that's happening to work on not only technology to improve quality of life, but cures and, uh, and ways to, to stop this disease. So it, it, it's a big thing. I, I like Golden West because it's my local chapter. Initially, when Hal was diagnosed with, with ALS, the also uh, didn't have much of a presence here in Santa Barbara. Towards the end, a lot more. And since the Ice Bucket Challenge, it's really helped to fund more presence. So yes, they helped us. They were the ones that helped us. I can help more and they are helping more and they are being more effective now because of funds that have gone to them. They, they've hired, we didn't even have a Santa Barbara uh, person when Hal had ALS. We were part of the greater Los Angeles area. And so, yes, we had help and I'm, and I really, it did make a difference, but I feel like we can make a lot more of a difference now. And I'm happy that I can help my people here. We're kind of in an isolated area. It doesn't sound isolated, but when it comes to medical support, we're isolated. There's no, there is no facility here in Santa Barbara that will take care of people that have, that are on life support that have had a tracheostomy. How had to live at home. Most people don't have the the support, the, the kind of person like me and with medical background that makes that possible. I have a few people here in Santa Barbara right now with trachs living at home, but they have to live at home. If they don't live at home, they, they either have to move to LA far away from family and friends, or they choose to end their life. This So we're working to make we're working to change that too. Uh, a lot of things. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, uh, my, my fundraiser, which I'm doing every year is in May, which is Hal's birthday. And it's a way for me to celebrate Hal instead of just mourning his loss. And it's a bike ride. Hal and I used to go on bike rides every year on our anniversary just to celebrate our, our marriage together. And every year we would ride at least the number of miles that were the number of years that we had been married. Uh, when he was dying, we were married in, in uh, 1979. So when he was diagnosed, we'd been, it was 30 years. When he died, it was 35 years. Uh, the last long ride we went on was that 30 year anniversary. And that was the first year where he couldn't even make the 30 miles. He stopped at around 25. And I said, don't worry, Hal. We didn't know he had ALS yet. It was in, and I said, don't worry, Hal, next year we'll do it. But of course, next year we didn't do it. But at any rate, that's why the bike ride is, is a cool thing for me. This fun ride, this fundraiser, I go ride my bike every year with Hal in my head. In my mind, we raise funds for the ALS Association Golden West Chapter. I've got a a, a team called House Pals Fight ALS, which was the name of the team that we created when he was still alive. 
and uh, <laughs> anything else, Dustin, about uh, the ALS Association or my fundraiser? Well, um, you know, I, I wanted to to you know end the the this this episode though with uh, you know the last sentence of Hal's Bitcoin and Me post that he posted in the Bitcoin Talk forum. He said that I am comfortable with my legacy, and and I we all agree that he has a great one, uh, both personally and and professionally. And I wanted to to really thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with about Hal and yourself with us. And to remind people that that do listen to to respect your your family's privacy, and and to reiterate that if you uh, encourage you to go to, I, I would post the full address to, and I'll have that in the show notes. But uh, I'm just going to be doing a redirect at didyouknowcrypto.com/hal to uh, the ALS Golden West chapters, the the fundraiser to sponsor for the for the Hal's Pals bike ride. Um, so if you go there or at uh, on Twitter, if you go to at Bitcoin, the number four ALS, it'll have all that information. Um, or if you just want to Google it, that's fine as well. And there's going to be the donation portal where you can donate cash through uh, credit or debit card and sponsor riders. Or if you yourself uh, uh, are in the area and want to want to run that, um, that'd be uh, that'd be great. And then. We're also working on, by the time that this goes live, we'll have that uh, Bitcoin donation address, and that will be going specifically all to the Golden West chapter that, that took care of Hal and, and to honor, honor Hal's memory. And just uh, once again, thank you so much for, for agreeing to come on. Oh, you're welcome. I, I'm, it actually makes me happy to, to talk about these memories of Hal. Uh, it just reminds me of how he was a glass mostly full guy and I'm going to love him forever. Thank you, Dustin.